We are in a series of lessons entitled, This Year As You Go. That's our theme. Coming out of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission. And of course, as you go on in that text, as you go, make disciples. Disciple the nations, depending on how you translate it. And we're talking about how you actually do that. Now, we're in a series, a sub-series, that's entitled, As You Go, Don't Forget Your Mission. Don't forget your mission. It's a study of the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 3 today. We'll be finishing it up next week. But without a doubt, the book of Jonah is the greatest fish story of all times. Now, if you've been coming the last couple of Sundays, you know that we begin each one with a fish story. Well, I've had everybody flooding me with their fish stories, okay? And so I, I want to share three very quick ones with you today. Number one comes from Bob Moore. Bob's sitting way up here in the top. Uh, Bob was fishing at Kentucky Lake several years ago with three of his friends. Two were in one boat, two were in the other boat. And they got to the spot where they thought there would be some bass there. And, and the first guy in his, in his boat throws out uh, his, his lure, hits the water, immediately goes under. The guy in the other boat decides there's bass there. He throws out his lure. It gets hit. It goes under. Both of them are reeling in frantically. But as they're reeling in, they're noticed that their lines are starting to converge. And of course, if you've ever gone fishing with friends, it's not unusual at all for you to throw your line over somebody else's line, get hooked with their line, and you're like, man, I've caught his line. And so I'm sure they're thinking that as they're reeling in, but at the same time, they're thinking it feels like there's a fish on this line. And when they finally get it to the boats, that fish had bit both lures. One lure was in one side of his mouth, one lure was in the other. And of course, the question is, how do you divide up a fish? And the answer was, we're going to let this fish go. He got caught twice, same moment, we're letting him go. That's story number one. Second one comes from Stacy Thurman and Bill Eubanks. They told me this one a couple of weeks ago. They're out fishing, uh, bass fishing. Stacy throws his lure into the water where he thinks the, bish, the bass is. Sure enough, boom, he gets hit. He jerks, snaps his line. I mean, just that quick. Bill, being a good friend, smarts off to him. Hey, I'll get your lure back. Throws his in near the same spot. His gets hit. Anybody want to guess what the fish had in its mouth? Stacy Thurman's lure, he grabs the fish, takes the lure off, says, here's your lure, and I think he kept the bass. So there you go. Now, here's my favorite, because I think this is probably the one with the biggest lie attached to it, okay? I was talking to Bob Williams uh, just yesterday. Some of you already know this one, right? Bob's told this story everywhere. I'm sure it's been in the Reader's Digest. Bob's fishing at Hilton Head. Bob's a big fisherman. He, he loves to just fish wherever he goes. He's fishing at Hilton Head when he, he snags a good-sized bass. And he begins to reel it in, gets it to the bank, grabs it, takes it off his hook, lays it on the side of the bank there where he is as he's you know getting ready to recast when someone behind him says, Watch out! And Bob turns and right beside him, coming right at him, is an alligator. 
And of course, Bob's like, oh no, and he grabs his rod, he pops the alligator as he's trying to get up the bank. He gets up the bank, the alligator changes direction and grabs his fish. And Bob says, he just took my fish and carried it off and ate my fish. To which I said to Bob, if that had been Tony Birmingham or me, we don't let that happen in Mississippi. We'd gone in after the alligator. There you go. Now, by the way, I asked him how long that alligator was. And Mary Jo said, well, originally it was six feet. Now it's up to 12. Before long, it'll be 18 feet. So, well, we're looking at the greatest fish story of all time today. Coming out of the book of Jonah. Uh, We've already talked about the fact that Jonah was the most reluctant missionary evangelist there ever was. He's being sent to the city of Nineveh, and the last thing Jonah wants is for God to save the Assyrians. He does not. That's why he runs from God. He's like, no, we are not going to save the Assyrians. Jonah is a very political prophet. He loves the northern kingdom. He's the only positive prophet of the northern kingdom. See, the rest of the Old Testament prophets are saying, you've sinned, you've left God, God's going to punish you. But Jonah sent, God sends a, a message through Jonah that says, but you know what? I still love my people. I still love the Israelites. And because of that, I'm going to actually bring peace. I'm going to expand the border. I'm going to bless Israel, even though their king is Jeroboam II, one of the most evil king of the, of the northern kingdom. And yet, here's Jonah preaching a positive message to a wicked people. And so he's pro-Israel. He hates the Assyrians. They're avowed enemies. And now God is sending him to the city of Nineveh to preach to them. And because of this, God makes Jonah a living parable of his gracious love. In other words, when Jonah says, no, I'm going the other way, God said, okay, so you don't want to save the lost. Let's see what happens when you become lost. I mean, do you want somebody to save you, a.k.a. me? And so you know the story. We looked at it last week. A great storm comes. The sailors are crying out. They take Jonah after casting lots. They throw him on board. He begins to sink down in the water. Chapter 2 is a description of the two or three minutes as he is sinking into oblivion about to drown. He describes how that he's going through the water into the depths of literally the sea, into the foot of the very mountains that hold up the earth, seaweeds beginning to wrap around his neck, and he's, he's, he knows, I'm, I'm dead. When all at once God sends a large, huge, giant fish that swallows him. And here's the point of that story. The fish wasn't his punishment. The fish was his salvation. And that was one of the points we noticed last week is oftentimes that which we think is the worst thing that's ever happened to us oftentimes becomes the best thing that ever happened to us. And so we pick up in Jonah chapter 2 with Jonah making a vow to God. I believe this is a vow he made while he's inside the, the giant fish. And so he says to God, what I have vowed, I will make good. And I think that vow is very simple. You want me to go to Nineveh? I'll go to Nineveh. And look at what he says about that vow. I will say salvation truly does come from Yahweh. Yahweh has saved him. Salvation comes from you, God. And I will make sure that the Ninevites know that. 
And so as we go into, and of course, immediately Yahweh causes this giant fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land, and immediately the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. I love that verse. Our God is a God of second chances. And I don't know about you, but I am sure glad that he is. And so lesson number one, we serve a God who is this God of second chances. You turn over to Luke chapter 17, and and in Luke 17, Jesus is talking about how often do you forgive your brother? And I want you to notice what he says to him, which is so fascinating. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke him. And if they repent, forgive them. Now listen to the next line, and if you've got a brother or sister that you grew up with, did you practice this? Now, I know your response is going to be, they wouldn't repent. I I get it, okay? But look at what he says. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And, of course, the point is not so much about us forgiving others as the fact that we serve a God who will forgive us. And so he's going to go because God has given him a second chance. Notice the language, though, of verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, earlier, the message had been very simple. Back in chapter 1, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But now God is almost as if I'm concerned that Jonah's not going to preach my message. And so he says, now you preach the message I give you. I was talking to Clyde Head the other day about about Jonah. And Clyde said, you know, the problem with Jonah is that when he went preaching, here's the way he preached. You don't want to be saved, do you? Which I think sometimes the way we preach. You know, I mean, you don't want this, right? And and so we get ourselves in trouble. I mean, here he is, this negative-minded, and we're going to see how negative next week. And God says, so when you go, you make sure you preach what I give you. And so he takes off. You see a map here of, of the Middle East. Uh, Israel's over in the far left. You see down in the very far left corner, you see the Dead Sea. Right above it, you see the Sea of Galilee. That's where Israel is, where the red line begins. And they would go north and come across what is called the Fertile Crescent. You couldn't go straight across because that's desert. That's the Iraqi and and the Jordanian desert. And so you didn't travel straight across. You went north and then cut across. And then it was way up north on the Euphrates River. And so he takes off on this over 500-mile journey. And notice what he says. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. He fulfilled his vow. God, you told me to do it. I'm going to do it. He obeyed the Lord. Obedience is something that is hard. I mean, it's easy to obey as long as you want to obey. I tell people all the time, when I was growing up and my dad said to me, you need to finish off that cornbread. I didn't have a problem keeping that commandment. But if he said, I need you to mow the yard today, oh, that's a little bit tougher one. And oftentimes he would pull in going, why isn't the yard mowed yet? Okay, dad, right now, you know, I'm mowing right now. I mean, obedience is easy when we want to do it. Boy, when we don't, it's a different story. But Jonah, not wanting to do it, obeyed the Lord. But notice that language there. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. The word very there in the Hebrew is the name of God. Elohim. I, I didn't know it until I was looking at the text. 
And, and what happens sometimes in the Old Testament is if you're wanting to describe something big, you put God's name in front of it. In other words, this is a God-sized city. This is God-sized compassion. This is God-sized love. And so you put the name of God in front of it, which is why nearly all of our translations translate it with the word very. But that word very there is Elohim. But look at the TLV. Uh, the Tree of Life version, which is a Jewish translation, they look at it because it's got a preposition there that's not in other texts that uses it this way. And so notice the way they translate it. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of Adonai. Now Nineveh was a great city to God. And the translators said that what they think's going on, and of course, if you know anything about the book of Jonah, Jonah weaves together all kinds of themes just beneath the surface. If you're reading just the story of Jonah, you're missing the story of Jonah. Because Jonah is packed full of stuff underneath the surface. And one of them is this fact, and that is that God loves everyone. It's not just the Israelites. It's not just Jerusalem. It's not just Samaria. But it's Nineveh as well. It's a city that's great to God. God loves it as well. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. And if you've not highlighted this verse, you need to highlight it. Now, this is about Israel, about Judah in particular, but it applies to everyone. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's hard. That's hard for me. Uh, we have avowed enemies of America. And it's not unusual at all to, to turn on the news and say, guess what? We finally got him. Osama bin Laden's not going to attack America again. Why? Because he's dead. And what do Americans do? They go out and they celebrate. They clout. We finally got him. And yet, what's God doing? God's grieving. God's grieving because another person created in his image has been lost. When, when someone's executed for a horrible crime, they finally got their due. But God doesn't rejoice in that. Because God would have rather that they had repented. You see, if we're not careful, we, we begin to become, we, we decide to sit in the judgment seat and decide who should be in and who should be out. And, and boy, when God punishes the wicked, wonderful, he's punishing the wicked. And God himself says, I don't even do that. In fact, look at what he says. But rather, I wish that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. That's what God wants. And by the way, he wants to use us, as just as he did to Ezekiel, to say that to people. Look at the Apostle Paul, and, and let me just make this point. We serve a God who wants everyone to be saved, do we? Look at Romans chapter 9. This is one of the most powerful texts in all the New Testament. Paul is describing his love for his people. And let me kind of explain why that's important here in just a moment. Look at how Paul begins. I speak the truth in Christ. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a true preacher, right? I mean, how many times have we preachers, and Keith will testify to this, we get up and say, now what I'm fixing to tell you is a true story. <laughs> As if oftentimes we don't tell true stories, right, Keith? But, but look, at, look at Paul. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
There he goes again. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then he explains what's going on in his heart. And look at what he says. Because this is so amazing. He says, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For who? For his people. Look at the words. For I could wish that I myself was cursed, cut off from Christ. For the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you love anybody that much? Do I? Paul says, my heart is breaking. N.T. Wright says in his biography of Paul, he says, Paul had people's faces in, in, as he wrote this in his, in his mind. Isn't it odd that Paul never mentioned his mom and dad obeying the gospel? You ever notice that? He talks about Timothy's mom, Timothy's grandmother. He talks about others who were relatives, mothers to him in the faith. But isn't it fascinating that he never mentions his own mom and dad? Were they dead before he received his call? Or did they reject his message? Who was so dear to him that he would offer his own life, his own salvation for them? And my question, even more important, is this. What if we as a people began to love this city, began to love this county, began to love this state, this nation so much that we would say, Lord, just cut me off if it'll just mean the salvation of people in this county. Now, of course, God's not going to do that. You, you need to understand the point that Paul's making. He's just saying that's how much I pray for and long for the salvation of my people. And let me tell you that if we would ever become a people who had that kind of anguish in our hearts, how it would change the world we live around. God loves everybody. Do we? The text goes on and it says it took three days to go through the city. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The symbolism in the language is just all over the place. Three days to get through the city. Three days in the belly of the fish. Three days for Abraham and Isaac to go down Mount to Moriah. Three days for the Israelites to go into the wilderness to worship God under the Pharaoh, three days for Jesus to be in the tomb. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not three days, but it means that there's a lot more symbolism there than we realize. And anybody who knows anything about the number 40 knows the same thing. 40 days for the Israelites to spy out the land, 40 years for them to wander in the wilderness, 40 days for Jesus to fast in the wilderness and then to face Satan. 40 is a significant number. And so we see it again being used in the text. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just as God made Jonah a living parable of his gracious love, he's now going to make Nineveh a living parable of his gracious forgiveness. I mean, the message is an ominous one. But the results are going to be this amazing story of salvation. A living Parable. Jonah had been cast into the sea so that he would be a living parable of what it's like to be snatched from death at just the last moment and saved by God. Now Nineveh is going to serve as, as this picture of this great city that was wicked, and yet it repented and God 
forgave it. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. A passage found in the law, found in the historical books, found in the poetic books, found in the prophets. By the way, found in chapter 4 when Jonah begins to complain to the Lord, I knew this is the kind of God you were. That's why I didn't want to come. We serve an amazing God, and, and, and you need to look beyond the surface for a moment and see the story that's actually taking place. You see, the story here is not the story about Nineveh. It's not, that's not the story. It's not the reason for the prophecy. The prophecy is about Israel. It's about how they have forgotten their mission. Jonah is simply a representative of Israel as a whole. They have forgotten their relationship with God. And so the story of Jonah is more a story about Israel than it is about Nineveh. Israel has gone astray. Israel is now wicked. Israel's fixing to be destroyed if she doesn't repent. Now the question is, will she do what Nineveh has done? There's the question. Because notice what Nineveh does. One short prophecy, 40 days, and the Ninevites believe it. That's simple. Faith is always the most important part. Just as small as a grain of mustard seed. And you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. I mean, faith is what it's all about. And the Ninevites believed God. Now, I want you to notice the language there. They believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. And you're like, well, but they had to believe Jonah to believe God. I get it, but they believed God. Lesson number three, the power of conversion is in the word of God, not the persuasive words of the prophet, preacher, and teacher. I mean, Jonah doesn't want them saved. But he preaches what God gave him. And so what was it? His persuasiveness? No. The power is in the power of the message. It's in the power of the word of God. If there is a lesson we need to learn today as Christians is that the power of the gospel... Well, let's look at what Paul said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, his command to send us into all the world because it is the power of God that brings salvation. It's not my ability or Keith's ability or all the teachers that we have. As great as your abilities are, it's not our abilities. The power is in the story. And because of that, even the least among us can tell the story of Jesus and that power bring people to God. That's why the Bible is so powerful. All you have to do is put a Bible and sometimes in people's hands and the next thing you know, they're becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the power is in the story, not in our persuasive abilities. And so a fast is proclaimed, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. You see the Ninevites not only believing but now responding, putting their faith into action. You go to the next verse, verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, what does he do? He rises up, takes his royal uh, robes off, covers himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, this language is foreign to us. We, we're not used to putting on... I don't even know for sure what sackcloth is. Okay? I, I know it's, it's less than ideal clothes. And, of course, he's sitting down in the dust... If you go over to Jonah 3, 7 to 8, he proclaims this fast for everyone. 
Look at the language here. I love this language. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. You want to talk about serious? By the way, do you know what cows do when you don't feed them? They let you know. You know what goats do when you don't let them drink? He lets you know. In other words, it's not long because before everyone is, is just wide awake because you couldn't sleep with all the noise going on. Because the animals are fasting. They're not being given anything to drink. The people are fasting. Now, of course, you can't go long without drinking water. We understand that. But it shows just how serious they are in responding to God. The psalmist, I love this. David is praying here for his enemies. He's responding to his enemies. And he says, yet, that word yet goes back to these enemies of his. He says, yet, when they were ill, when I heard that they were sick, what did I do? He said, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. You see, sackcloth, ashes, and, and fasting's all a sign of humility, saying to God, God, it's not about me, it's about you. And if there's a place in my life that I have failed miserably, it's in the, in the area of humility. So I've always been aware of it. It's one of those things of constantly saying, you know, don't make it about yourself. And, and, and again and again, I fail on that. This is about God. And God's calling the people. And, and, and what I love is what God does. Here's the king. Let everyone call urgently on Elohim. Let them give up their evil ways, their violence. Who knows? Elohim may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I mean, he says our only hope is in God. Let's, let's call out to him. Let's pray to him. Jeremiah basically said the same thing as, as the Babylonian army several a couple of hundred years later, as they're surrounding Jerusalem, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah, who come through these gates there at the temple to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I'll let you live in this place. Because you see, the most important point is that when we have faith that leads us to fast, that causes us to pray, we have a God who responds. The response from Nineveh is the response God desires from Israel, from us, from everyone. Just trust Him, turn to Him, do what He asks you to do, and enjoy His forgiveness. And when the Lord saw that they did, or, or what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let me tell you one of the most important lessons of all. And that's this one right here. God loves to forgive. Love, forgiveness, that's everything to God. And you may say, not me. You just don't know how many times I've messed up. <laughs> Seven times in a day. Seven days in a week, 365 days in a year. Let me tell you how much God loves to forgive. Luke 15, that great chapter of, you know, the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep. 
In verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Who are the angels of God in the presence of? And the answer, of course, is our Father. And there's rejoicing in their presence. God is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. I wonder how many angels witnessed rejoicing this morning as we've come into the presence of our God. And so this week, as you go, let me give you these challenges. Number one, of course, in light of next week, read Jonah 4. All of these chapters are super short. Read Jonah 4. By the way, let me, let me make a plug before we go just to the next step. In two weeks, we start a congregation-wide journey through the book of Matthew. As you, came in, as you came in this morning, you may have noticed that on the tables in the front foyer as well as on the tables in the back foyer are little copies of the book of Matthew. There's one there for, for every person in our church. Uh, don't, don't, don't take more than one. And by the way, if you get there this, uh, this morning as you leave and they're gone, there'll be more of them by next week. This starts in two weeks. But we want you to grab a copy of the book of Matthew. It's a journey. It's a journal Bible. That one right here, this is what they'll look like. And, and when you open them up, they've got part of Matthew on the left, and then they've got a place to take notes on the right. Grab one of these, and let's journey together in two weeks, starting through the book of Matthew, to look at how Jesus made disciples. Uh, write your name in it. We're going to have 500-plus books of Matthew in the building. You leave yours, and your name's not in it. Did you find my book? Who knows? Okay, put your name, put your phone number in it so we can call you up. If you're online, we have them here at the office. You can come by the office this week, and we'd be happy to give you one. Uh, we'll have some on the table for those of you who exit out. The front foyer to the right, we'll have some there as well this morning. So please grab one of these as you go. But this week, Jonah chapter 4. Number two, continue to pray for Hendersonville and Sumner County for those who don't know Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I tend to pray the same thing, you know, the same topics all the time. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. You get into this rhythm. June and I, when we pray, we always begin by praying for one another, and then we pray for our family, and then we pray for the church. You know, we have this rhythm we go through. Add to your rhythm those who don't know Jesus in our community and pray for them by name if you've got something, someone on your heart that you need to pray for. Number three, remember, God is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, you name it. And if you've been thinking, you know what? I need to take advantage of the God of grace. You can do that today. If you believe in Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptized, you can put him on in baptism today, this morning. If you've wandered away, if you did like Jonah, you ran away from God instead of to God. You can do that today. If you've got something overwhelming in your life, you can come today and we'll pray for you. God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Number four, and simply share the story. Let the gospel do the heavy lifting because that's where the power is. So if you need to respond, you can do it right now. As together we stand and sing.